Your news, your views, your values. This is WMNF Tampa 88.5 FM. Hi, I'm Jennifer McTritus, Chair of the Diversity and Inclusion Committee. Tune in to 88.5 FM and WMNF.org to hear interviews with our volunteer programmers, music you won't hear anywhere else, and informative news. Our Diversity and Inclusion Committee is excited to connect with organizations and individuals that support our local area. Thank you for keeping our community strong, and we want to help you make a difference. Let's do this together by emailing diversity at WMNF.org. Here comes the sun, I say it's alright. Hi, I'm Annie Ellis, and you're listening to the Sustainable Living Show on WMNF 80, uh, Tampa 88.5. Today's guest is Manny Herrera, and we're talking about Florida's carnivorous plants. If you have seen them in the wild or successfully grown a carnivorous plant, give us a call or, or not successfully grown, <laughs> uh, a call at 813-239-9663 or send us an email at dj at wmnf.org and we will read it on the air. And uh, so I, I kind of already messed up. <laughs> oh my it's gosh. only radio. <laughs> it's only radio. Nobody's going to die on the table. Oh, you can okay. tell listeners what's happening this Wednesday, May 4th. Oh, okay. So this Wednesday, uh, May 4th, is World Carnivorous Plant Day. And Florida has more than 30 species of carnivorous plants. Today, we're talking with Manny Herrera, a longtime grower and explorer of carnivorous plants. Kenny will also be answering questions uh, as his third book, third book, y'all, Florida's Carnivorous Plants, is available as a pre-order now and will be published July 15th. Stay tuned in as we promote a balance of people, profit, and planet. And I just wanted to say that uh, my friend Kenny over here is just amazing. And it, he is the non-carnivorous uh, <laughs> Kenny Coogan. So, and, you know, we have our calls are monitored with Clark and working the boards is Mr. Bill Grace. So, um <laughs> I love that music, Little Shop of Horrors. Feed me, Seymour. So, uh, welcome to the program, Manny. Hi, Manny. Manny. Yes, can you hear me? Yes, Yes, we we can can hear you perfectly. Um, So, I just wanted to let you know that Manny's on here, and we'll be talking to Manny and Kenny because they are both experts on carnivorous plants. Mm -hmm. And first, we're going to ask Kenny, who is the education director of the International Carnivorous Plant Society, what is World Carnivorous Plant Day? So the International Carnivorous Plant Society is a group of gardeners and conservationists and scientists and educators who are all interested in sharing knowledge and news about carnivorous plants. And last year, someone from Poland, Krzysztof Banis, talked to the board and said that there should be an international celebration of carnivorous plants. He envisioned a day that brought carnivorous plants into the spotlight of public awareness and education because they're disproportionately uh, threatened and endangered. So we decided to hold 
the first World Carnivorous Plant Day last year on the first Wednesday of May each year because we didn't want to conflict with the World Naked Gardening Day, <laughs> which is the first Saturday of May. We do not want to combine those two. No, that could be so, dangerous. <laughs> we also decided to do it in May because a lot of... We have a lot of members in the Northern Hemisphere, which is when carnivorous plants are active in the springtime. We wanted to do it during the weekday so kids could get involved. And this year, we're really excited. It's Wednesday, May 4th. On that day, we are going to have over 24 videos released. Oh, my goodness. That's amazing. And they're from people in Japan, Australia, South Africa, South America, Europe. And uh, Released on what, Kenny? Good question. It's going to be on the International Carnivorous Plant Society's Facebook page mm-hmm. and YouTube channel. Okay, so YouTube, and you put that in, then you'll get it. Yes. Okay. Now, what is a carnivorous plant? We Kenny? generally define that carnivorous plants have to lure and attract their food. They have to be able to digest and benefit from the digestion. And carnivorous plants are just plants with a special set of characters, that allow them to use animals as food. So there's nothing magical about them. A lot of other plants can do that, but in order to be a carnivorous plant, they have to do all three of those traits. Lure, digest, digest, and benefit from the digestion. Oh, okay. Okay, that makes sense. Now, Manny, uh, when did you uh, first see your, uh, the very first carnivorous plant in the wild? In the wild? Yeah. (laughs) Let's see. That probably would have been a butterwort or bladderwort down in South Florida. Uh, mm-hmm. The butterworts grow in the Everglades National Park in the uh, area of Miami-Dade County and Monroe County. Mm-hmm. And the bladderworts grow almost in any standing body of fresh water down there and, and up here. I'm up in North Central Florida now. Okay. But throughout uh, North America, most standing bodies of water will have bladderworts. And down there, you can find them on the roadside canals. Even, I remember being a child driving through downtown Miami, and there was a road, there was a canal that was completely surrounded by concrete, and there were bladderwort flowers sticking out of the water. Oh, it's so beautiful. Did you know that they were carnivorous at the time? I did. I did. Once, uh... Once we moved up, I, I'm originally from Key West, but once we moved up to Miami, I had already uh, gone through my parents' books. My my dad was always a plant person, and my oh. parents had plants at home. And, and as a kid, going through their books, being a little boy, the the ones that caught my attention were the parts of the plants that could uh, attract, capture, kill, and eat. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> capture, kill, and eat. I get it. As a little voice. Right. Or the plants that move. You know, some of them move and, and yeah. that catches a, a, a little a child's attention more than, uh, than uh, as I call them, regular plants. Yeah, those <laughs> ones that close up, it's pretty exciting when they do that, actually. So I, I assume, because I'm not a carnivorous plant person, just to let you know up front, I am the, uh, the ignorant person on the group today, <laughs> completely. Uh, but I assume that each species has a different way to trap and digest insects. I mean, I kind of know a little bit about that. But uh, can you share how some of the native Florida carnivorous plants do that, like the butterworts, bladderworts, pitcher plants, venus flytraps, sundews, bromeliad, and then... Uh, so if you could let us know a little bit about that, that would be, I think, very interesting to the public. 
Absolutely. And I got to say before, before getting into that, I didn't know that Kenny was not carnivorous and that's... <laughs> yeah, he doesn't eat meat, so there's that. <laughs> but I did feed some... Uh, Love bugs? Is that what they're called? Yeah, June bugs? Lo- yeah. Well, yeah. there's two different things. Love bugs and June bugs are two different things. The but pesky love bugs, yes. Yeah, the love bugs, they were being devoured by my Venus flytraps this weekend. <laughs> well, there you go. You're, you're a vicarious carnivore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He's still the little boy that likes the prey and the kill thing, I guess. Go ahead, though, Manny. Tell us about All that. Right. Can, yeah, so can you tell us about how the butterworts uh, eat their food? Butterworts? Generally, the native species produce flat, low-lying leaves. Uh, they, they tend to be green or yellow. There's one species uh, up in the panhandle that produces red or purple leaves. But they, they, the premise is the same. They produce these flat leaves that lie on the surface of the, of the ground or on the surrounding vegetation. And they have a, a glossy, kind of sticky mucilage, if, if I'm pronouncing that term yes, properly. Yes, that's right on the surface of the leaf, and it attracts small insects, usually uh, ants and gnats, and uh, uh, insects on a smaller scale, and they become uh, mired in that sticky substance and slowly suffocate on uh, on the substance, and the leaf will then produce a digestive enzyme right on the leaf that will break down the insect as it's uh, lying on the leaf. So, uh, since I'm so ignorant about all this, it's interesting to me. Is so, uh, so that doesn't close; it just stays open, mm-hmm. and it has the uh, the goo there, basically Correct. that it gets. It tries to get out, so it gets even more stuck. It's like a, a flypaper. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so, so then, paper, go yeah, ahead. So these flypaper traps, and there's a few. Uh, the sundew, the, uh, the native ones. There's sundews and butterworts. They do. The more that the uh, insect or animal struggles, the more it produces the sticky stuff. Oh, so it, it just innately knows that it needs to give it more goo uh, to, to get it stuck better. Wow, and that's it interesting. Covers it, up in it. it covers it up in it and eventually the insect uh, or animal cannot, cannot uh, set itself free and right. it, uh, it, it, it dies and it is digested on the leaf. Now, regarding movement with butterworts, there, there is is some information about the leaves, the edge of the leaves curling inward mm-hmm. to kind of create a uh, a buffer for that that it's not really a liquid, but that substance that's in there, like a dam. Uh, correct. Yeah, I I must say I, I don't see that very often. I I, I think that my opinion is probably not worth much as far as the scientific uh, uh, the science is concerned. But my opinion is that that's more environmental depending on the conditions in which, in which it's growing, mm. not so much uh, done in response to, uh, to prey being uh, on the leaf. So, like, when you say the environmental, to me, that immediately makes me think of that if it's in an environment that's really wet, then the water would go in and dilute the goo. So is that why it would do that, even so? Uh, that it would right. prevent I, I, the water from coming in uh, to dilute that? Right. So okay. I've seen in, in the wild the, 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 the species that grow either in very dryish or, or very wet conditions. But when, I've, when I've seen them very wet, the leaves tend to be a little bit more wrapped up around right. the edges. And when they're growing in a more dry environment, then the leaves lay even more open and 
flat on the ground. That is so interesting. You know, it just tells you what nature handles it all so perfectly. You know, we have a, a call. Is it a call, Kenny, yep. on the line? So we'd like to go ahead and go with that and see what they have to ask us. So we have David from Tampa, and he went to Buck Tower recently. Oh, great. And thank you, David, for Beautiful being place. patient. Welcome to the show. Hi. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to mention um, that they do have a fantastic carnivorous plant exhibit there, um, not just with the plants, but they have these kind of cool sculptures. Yeah, the metal sculptures. Too, <laughs> which are, yeah, it's incredible. I really liked it a lot and found it really interesting and educational. And the Buck Tower is only about an hour and a half east of Tampa, so it's not that far to drive. So uh-huh. I recommend to folks to go check it out. Yeah, we had them on the show uh, yeah, back in, uh, a couple months ago. Yeah, December. Uh, you can even listen to the archives if you wanted to go through that and, and find it. It was a wonderful program. I think I heard that show. Oh, good. good. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm glad and you then, went. That's wonderful. It's a beautiful place. Yeah, I was thinking they should show a um, screening of Little Shop of Horrors. <laughs> <laughs> Something out in the field. <laughs> That'd be yeah, great. Yeah, exactly. That'd be awesome. That'd be fun. <laughs> yeah, that is fun. <laughs> On the uh, December episode, when we talked with the Bach Tower yeah, Gardens, we I mentioned that the artist actually bought one of each of those carnivorous plants from me. and oh, he, from you. Yeah, and he modeled them. Those four foot tall metal sculptures oh, so after, he, that after was the his, real ones. So yeah. that was his uh, his uh, inspiration for doing that. That's great. Yeah. Wow. Thanks, David, for the reminder. Yeah. Thank <laughs> you for calling. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. Bye. All right. So, Manny, you described how butterworts catch their food. Can you tell us what? First, can you even tell us what a bladderwort is, and then how do they <laughs> eat their food? <laughs> I. Uh, Bladderworts are the uh, the oft overlooked cousin in the carnivorous plant family. They're they're very common. Uh, however, their trapping usually takes place under the surface of the water or the soil. Oh, so you don't really get to see it with a naked eye. Uh, they they produce these tiny, small traps on the ends of their leaves, and they're called bladders. And each bladder has a, a, a set of trigger hairs that when a, a microscopic, usually, uh, organism brushes up against it, it, it the, the, the trap opens and sucks in whatever is closest to it. And then the trap door shuts, and now it has a, uh, a meal inside of these, this tiny little bladder. Closes his mouth. Right. <laughs> so these, uh, these bladders... Uh, yeah, I, I once heard someone describe bladderworts as the most ruthless carnivorous plant. Oh, my gosh. They just free float in the water or in the, you know, kind of just swim around sucking in food. They don't, really <laughs> they don't stay stuck. They go for it. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> they don't really have roots or even leaves. Oh, my they're gosh. They're flower and they're uh, underground or underwater uh, sets of, I guess you can call them leaves, but they're really little branches with bladders on them. Wow. The cool thing about them is if they get something that's too big, like a mosquito larvae or a tadpole, they'll suck in what they can, and then whatever is inside the bladder, they'll digest when the rest of the animal is outside the bladder. And then after they digest the part that's inside the bladder, they reset so fast, they're the quickest carnivorous plant out of all thousand or so species, that they'll suck in the next bit. So they like eat it bit by bit. Oh my God! There so it's go. the, the elephant. It is the most 
it is the most ruthless. Wow. If you go to uh, YouTube and go to TED Talks, you know yeah. TED Talks? Yeah, yeah. I have an animated TED Talk on carnivorous you plants. Do? and it's You're so uh, good. It's uh, animated really well with a bladderwort That's eating funny. a tadpole. So, <laughs> there, so you there eat is great footage. There is great footage of bladderwort traps in action. Um, That's exciting. You can see and you can even hear. I remember there, and this is going back to probably the early 80s. I, I, I didn't see it then. Of course, I was too young, but I saw it after. But the, the, it was a National Geographic documentary on carnivorous plants. And the, the, the technology was either from the 70s or the 80s, but they managed to capture the, the, the bladderwort sucking in the prey and the sound that it makes. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Not only is it ruthless, it's noisy. Right. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> That's so funny. We actually have another call from Mark in Riverview. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the show. I sent you a text picture of the penis plant. Yes. That's a real penis plant. <laughs> all that one. Is that a real thing? It's so, a real thing, I swear to God. <laughs> I'm actually asking the expert here because I'm scared. <laughs> so thanks, Mark. I'll describe it to uh, Manny, and I'm positive he'll... Exactly. He sees it. Yeah. He sees it on the screen. I can't see it, which is okay. I'm fine with that. <laughs> if you want me to. I hear that the head opens up on it and it eats the insect. Yeah, sort of like a Venus flytrap, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. But it looks like a real man's penis. Oh, my gosh. It's circumcised, by the way, also. Okay. Thanks, Mark. <laughs> Thanks, Mark, for that Thanks description. Thanks for the levity. I appreciate it. I always like that part. So, <laughs> Have a great um, day. Manny, I'm positive you know what he's talking about. He's talking about the Asian pitcher plants, which are the Nepenthes, which you, I don't know if you specialize in them, but you have half of your collection is probably Nepenthes. So, yes. so we're going to go away from Florida just for a minute. So can you tell... Oh, because it's in, an Asian strictly. Do you bring them here? Yeah, it's an Asian species. These are the pitcher plants that are sold at all the plant sales and hanging baskets. Okay. So, Manny, can you tell us a little a bit yes. about the Nepenthes? The, the Nepenthes pitcher plant, is, it is native mostly to Asia. It does grow in Madagascar as well. There's one or two species, I believe, that grow in Madagascar. So it's African and Asian and also Australian. There's a couple species, uh, three species that grow in Australia. They, uh, this is a uh, one of the oldest carnivorous plants, if I'm not mistaken. Old they man penis. <laughs> Sorry, I'm sad, sad to say it. Is that what it was? That the description? Old man penis? That's <laughs> what he said. Uh, I, I don't know if any of this show will air, even <laughs> though we're live. Be completely <laughs> banned from the air forever. <laughs> I, well, I don't know how he makes this distinction between old and young, but. Oh, I, oh, never mind. <laughs> I am trying to promote a wholesome That's world's right. carnivorous plant day. We're bringing it into May 4th, the dirt. 2022. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, well, you know, one of the great, one of the great things about the, uh, about the plant world is this anthropomorphism. It, it, you know, we can joke about yes. it. But there are, there are plants that do resemble human organs. Uh, even it is fascinating. Yeah, it speaking is. of anthropomorphism, I, I let Annie say it, but she even said, like, oh, they, she was talking about the butterworth. She's like, oh, they think, you know, 
they think. Yeah, but yeah. they don't really think because they're just a plant. Well, it's a reaction. Yeah. You know, it's a reactive thing. It's just right. like, uh, but I, know, I mean, the slime, the slime has an intelligence to it that, you know, moves forward. So I thought maybe it does, but it doesn't. Okay. All right. It's You've squashed that for me. <laughs> it's encoded in its DNA. It's a react. It's yeah. a knee-jerk reaction if it had a knee. Okay. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, so the Nepenthes pitcher plant is, uh, and you'll forgive me, I don't use the proper botanical terminology, but it produces a, it's a stem, it's kind of a viney stemming plant. It produces uh, leaves, which at the end of the leaf, at the tip of the leaf, there is a tendril, a long, thin tendril, and mm-hmm. it varies by species. And then that tendril at the tip of that produces a, a pitcher, a jug, which uh, can, they can vary from short and squat to long and big. Uh, <laughs> I'm <laughs> so, so sorry. Where the, where the, uh, the imagination goes. Uh, there's, they take on all types of looks and shapes, uh, depending on the species, and there are many, many hybrids. And these function in a similar way to American pitcher plants, which is they produce a nectar on the leaf, mm. excuse me, on the tip of the, uh, on the rim of the pitcher, on the peristome or the lip, and that nectar attracts insects and animals, and uh, as they feed on it, some of them even have uh, a narcotic effect on the uh, prey. Oh. And the prey falls into the pitcher. In the case of the Nepenthes, they, uh, they already have a liquid inside of the pitcher, which is an enzyme that the plant produces. Uh, and the insect will drown, and as it drowns, it, fall, it dies, it falls to the bottom of the trap, and it's digested in there. It's broken down by that liquid, and the plant absorbs all the good stuff. So the enzyme is the digestive juice that the plant produces to break it down? Yes. The, okay. So the plant, the, plant op- the pitcher itself opens already having produced that liquid. Uh-huh. And then most of them will have a lid over the pitcher opening so as to protect the, the liquid from dilution. Yes, that makes sense. Right. Now, uh, so you're saying it has a narcotic effect on it? So the thing is that, like, dies drunk or something like that? Well, is there, that what- there, are some, there, are, there is some information out there. There are some studies. I don't know the, the definitive nature of it, but the, 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 the pitcher plants do, some of the pitcher plants produce nectar that, that, that has a narcotic effect on the prey. Yeah, so it kind of becomes uh, drunk. Yeah, well, that's kind of uh, good that it doesn't just go in there scared to death. <laughs> it makes me feel a little better somehow. I don't know why. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not an expert on the psyche of insects. I don't know if they yeah. can pain even, but, but uh, at least they go in happy. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, the chemical compound is called conine, and it's also in my TED Talk. Oh, good And for you. it's kind of like poison. How do you spell that, Kenny? I want to look it up. C-O-N-I-I. N-E. Okay, thank you. It is misspelled in the TED Talk. Yeah, because it has only one eye. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So it's kind of like uh, poison hemlock. But oh, okay. before, uh, Manny, we're going to start talking about Venus flytraps. But before we do that, I want to reintroduce you. I am Kenny Coogan, and you are listening to The Sustainable Living Show on WMNF, Tampa 88.5. Today's guest is Manny Herrera, and we are talking about Florida's carnivorous plants and World's Carnivorous Plant Day. If you have seen them in the wild in Florida or anywhere, I suppose, or successfully grown a carnivorous plant, give us a call at 813-239-9663 or send us an email at dj at wmnf.org and we will read it on air. So 
Venus flytraps are not native to Florida, but about 50 years ago, somebody took some seeds and they spread them around uh, the panhandle. So we do have a rogue population. So Manny, can you tell listeners how Venus flytraps work? Venus flytraps, they're found uh, throughout the the panhandle now. There's a few different spots. And I've heard there's some in the peninsula. I've never seen those myself, but I have stumbled upon a couple pop, a few populations in the Panhandle unexpectedly. So, well, one, the famous one that, that I knew they were there, and then the other one that I, I was surprised to find them. Uh, but they have kind of become natives now, and they. Kenny has been so good at giving us the more scientific sounding descriptions. So <laughs> yeah, he's great that way. Yeah, he can clean up my uh, my my little portion. <laughs> so he does that for me as well. It's <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> Man- Manny, can you confirm you that your full time job is a lawyer, right? I, I begrudgingly will confirm. That. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a lawyer saying it too, doesn't it? That's funny. <laughs> Don't hold it against me. <laughs> right. right. Uh, the Venus flytrap, everybody's familiar, at least most everyone is familiar with, with what it looks like. Uh, it has kind of that V-shaped leaf. Uh, it's two halves, looks like an open mouth. And mm-hmm. in, on the inside of that mouth, there are usually, uh, there's usually some red coloring on both sides. And that is presumably to attract insects that are seeking... Uh, that are carnivores themselves, or 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 carrion that eat carrion, so they uh, they look like pieces of flesh. The leaf will also produce a nectar on the tip to attract insects that are nectar feeding. Mm. And inside of the leaf, there are very small trigger hairs, not the not the not the teeth that we're familiar with on the outside of the trap. Those. Those act as prison bars once the uh, trap is closed, uh. not closed all the way. And those act kind of like prison bars to prevent the uh, the prey from escaping. But the, the the hairs I'm talking about are on the very inside, on the sides of the of the leaves themselves, the leaves themselves, and they they act as triggers, and they need to be triggered twice. If I'm not, I think it's twice now. Uh, it's either two or three times, and if it's if it's triggered once, the trap won't close. If it's triggered twice or three times, then the trap instantly snaps shut. And uh, Kenny might know the speed. I have forgotten the exact speed. But uh, it also varies based on environmental conditions uh, and uh, cultivating conditions. If the trap is uh, not, if the plant's not extremely happy, it might close slower. If it's doing very well, it closes extremely fast. Also, in colder when the temperatures are colder, they tend to close uh, uh, slower. Now, the, the, the purpose of those trigger hairs is to prevent the trap from being shut accidentally, so to speak. Oh, right. right. It has to go through Water. some channels to make it happen. Right. Or by debris. <laughs> the traps only function about three times, so that's an average. They might, tra- they might function maybe a little bit, maybe four, but they have about three snap movements in them. Before the trap is uh, is no longer useful and it is uh, it, it begins it begins to decay and new traps are new leaves are produced and uh, as I stated the ones on the outside when the trap closes it first closes uh, trap the prey and those uh, those those hairs that those teeth so to speak on the edge of the leaf they act as, as prison bars then as the prey moves and struggles 
this stimulates the tract to close even tighter, and it crushes or suffocates. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then the trap closes completely shut, and it kind of flares those teeth back out, and it produces a, an, an, an enzyme that will break down the, the prey, and when it's done digesting it, usually after a couple days, it opens, and the husk of the prey will remain in there. It'll pro- usually fall out with the wind, and the trap is reset. For the next victim. So let me, I want to clarify because, you know, uh, I'm the person that that doesn't know anything about this stuff. But when I, I remember I had a friend, I used to take care of plants way back in the day uh, for people that went out of town. And this one woman, she had a little Venus fly trap and I had learned that it had to have, I think it was three actually. And I, you do press, you tap one and you do the others and then it closes. But you just said it only has three closing times in its life. I mean, I probably killed that plant that day. So uh, I'm just wondering, so you're saying it only has three times and then it dies and then another plant comes up right behind it like a, a new growth. Is that right? Well, the, the, the leaf dies. Constantly, well, right, the plant is constantly producing leaves during the growing season. They, go, they do go dormant in the wintertime, but during the growing season, it's constantly pr- producing leaves, and each leaf uh, has a trap on it. But each trap has about three, three uh, functions, I guess, three snappings. Mm-hmm. And, and, and yes, the bane of every carnivorous plant grower is for people to snap there to close. Yeah, the that's exactly what I did. I was playing uh-huh. with it, and so so the, you're saying when you see because as again, I don't know anything, so I'm listening. I, I'm listening like a regular listener. So if you had you say the leaf, that would be the mouth that's open is yeah. considered a leaf. So it's the base is the leaf, and then the top is the, the mouth. Trap, that's yeah. a, the trap. So okay. one plant can have okay you know, seven to 15 leaves and oh, traps. Okay. I didn't know. So that's, you times it by three, so right. they can eat like 40 times. And then if you play with your finger, they get a little tired. But if you put a bug in there or they, they naturally catch a bug, then they get some extra nutrients and then they produce new leaves. Okay. Okay, you thank raise, you. You raise a good point that I, I think a lot of people, non-carnivorous plant-growing people... Yeah, they go are. crazy. They think, oh, this is exciting, and just do the deal. Right. It's not and, a sensitive plant. Uh, <laughs> right. Leaves, it's oversensitive. Traps, <laughs> the, these traps on carnivorous plants, whether they be pitcher plants, whether they be the nepenthes, which, which is the, the, where the trap is suspended at the end of the leaf, mm-hmm. or the sundews and the venus flyers, these are all leaves. Yeah. They're all the actual leaves of the plant. They're not, uh, a lot of people mistake them for flowers yeah. or, mm-hmm. or some other alien part of the plant. But no, these are all, these are all leaves. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's just interesting to me. There's a famous carnivorous plant nursery in California called California Carnivores. And the owner is Catchy. Peter D'Amato. <laughs> and he um, hates when people stick their fingers oh, in yeah. the Venus flytraps. So he rigged. A three foot tall, a three foot wide spider, and then <laughs> he he would down. be like thirty feet away with a you know with the spider tied to a string, and then whenever somebody would start to put their finger, and he would release the spider oh, on that's them. Funny, <laughs> release what the kraken. <laughs> what I found at work whenever I did shows, uh, different shows in, uh, in person, and, and brought a collection of plants, mm-hmm. I would bring a mimosa sensitive plant. Ooh. Yes, because those you can touch. As many times as you like, and they open much faster. They 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 come back to the open position much faster than a Venus flytrap. So when when you have children or or people who can't contain themselves, you tell them to go play with the uh, the mimosa. 
Mm-hmm. And, and that needs to distract their attention from the <laughs> And that life. doesn't wear out the mimosa? It doesn't do that? Not that I'm aware of. No, yeah. I don't think so. Also, some of them have uh, spines, and if, if they keep playing too much and get too close to the, to the stem, they get pricked, and, and that usually gets them to go away. Mm. So wow. I want to take the rest of the show to talk about how to grow carnivorous plants. And if listeners are interested, this Saturday... May 7th from 9 to 2 at the USF Botanical Gardens to celebrate World's Carnivorous Plant Day, which is this Wednesday, there will be a carnivorous plant sale. So what, Manny, what are some, uh, let's talk about the Venus flytraps and the North American pitcher plants. What are the light requirements and how can you successfully grow a flytrap in a North American pitcher plant? A lot of that is going to depend on your growing conditions and your location. I'll go with the, uh, the southwest Florida, kind of Tampa, central Florida area. If you're, if you're located there, generally you want to give your pitcher plants and Venus flytraps or, or even uh, native sundews full sun. Okay. Full sun for as much of the day as you can. Now... There are some nuances, being that we live in a very, very hot, sunny place, you can probably give them a little less direct sun, and they'll do just as well. So like Um, six to eight hours of full sun? I would say six to eight hours of full sun is is, uh, going to be ideal anyway, but I, I, I... uh, for, for example, I have a couple that I, I'm experimenting with, and I'll give them full sun till about one o'clock in the afternoon, and uh, and they'll do fine, and they'll they'll look just as healthy. You may not get those deep, dark colors that you'll get if they're exposed to full sun mm-hmm. all day, but uh, it's a trade-off. The Saracenia, the, uh, the the native pitcher plant. When grown in cultivation, uh, can be highly susceptible to different pathogens and, and what we call rot, just as a generic term, and and it's likely due to heat buildup at the rhizome. So uh, people uh, sometimes experiment growing them in uh, in white containers, which is what I've done, or or in beds. Oh, to reflect well the heat. Yeah. You know, it's it, it's. I don't know that they dislike the heat so much. I think that there's just something that when they're in cultivation and they're in a in a limited space and there's heat buildup that it 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 uh, propagates some sort of pathogen that affects mm-hmm. the uh, that attacks the rhizome. But they they are all native to very hot southern climate. Mm-hmm. To the very hot excuse me to the very hot southern climate. They grow generally the majority of them grow from southern Virginia. Or Central Virginia, all the way through the, the south, from the east through the eastern seaboard, through the uh, Florida Panhandle, all the way to uh, West Texas in the Gulf Coastal Plain. So they come from a very hot geographic region, but they're growing in the ground. And I think uh, that if you grow them in beds or in big containers or in maybe uh, white or even styrofoam containers, they do. They do uh, they do better and maybe limiting some of the direct sunlight, which which would limit some of the heat that they're exposed to. Uh, that's just for the American pitcher plants. The Venus flytraps and the sundews, I, I don't find you have an issue at all. They can be grown in full sun, and all of these plants like a lot of water. It's better to set them in shallow trays or saucers of water if you can't water them overhead daily because they will dry up pretty fast. 
And they're, they're all wetland plants, but you want to keep them uh, very moist. So let me time. ask you a question, Manny, because this is, I'm curious to this, because, you know, a lot of people like indoor plants. I don't think you can grow this indoors. Is that correct? I mean, not you in a greenhouse there. condition. I mean, inside a house. Oh, right. I, I understood. Yeah. You can. And there are people who have become experts at doing that. Uh, they, there are ways to do it. I, because I live in Florida, grow very little indoors. I grow yeah. everything outside or in a greenhouse that is more of a shade house, really. Uh, so I, 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 I'm not the expert at indoor growing, but I do. I have seen people expertly grow these plants okay. inside. Some, some, even, some people use the terrarium. Other people even just use a windowsill, and they do very well. Okay, I, so- I think that the key, though, is providing them with that moisture at the uh, root and uh, and a lot of strong light. Yeah, you have to jump through thing. quite a few hoops to make that happen. I think, do we have a call or an email? We have, we have both. We have everything. But I also want to mention, if you go to the International Carnivorous Plant Society's website, there's a whole section on growing carnivorous plants indoors. Oh, very good. Because the invention of LED lights, not just grow lights, but LED lights has really helped people add carnivorous plants inside their homes. Oh, good to know. So right. we'll first take the call, which is Jim from St. Pete. Hi, Jim. Hey, how are you? I've got uh, about three Nepenthos pitcher plants, and my wife originally got them at a uh, festival, and we cut them and rooted them and made more of them and given some away, but... The lady we got them from always said, oh, you got to keep the babies, the little pictures. You got to keep water in them. And I just heard uh, Manny say, you don't want to dilute that. That's what the cap is for. Now, is that right? Or am I, did I hear it right? That's a great question. Manny, do you want to elaborate? That is a good question. She's partially right. You don't, you only want to add water to the traps, and it doesn't matter whether they're babies or you know small traps or big traps. But you you want to add water only when the, that liquid spills out, which is I can guarantee you will always happen if you're moving the plant. Sometimes right. it happens. It happens if you're walking by it and you and there's a, a pitcher hanging, and it, it I've often spilled all of the uh, that. Stomach contents. This digestive soup all over my head or shoulders. <laughs> oh, that's gross. Uh, <laughs> You've been slimed. And, uh, <laughs> right. And you do want to add a little bit of water just so that the plant can replenish that substance. It will, uh, it will produce new uh, digestive enzymes if, that, if you add water. So the water activates the uh, ability of the plant to produce more? Is that how that works? It would, yes, it would seem so that if you do add the water in there, it will continue to produce the digestive oh. enzyme. If but you don't, don't fill add it up, just put some in. water in it. I'm, I'm sorry, what was that? Don't fill it up, just put some water no. in it, right? Like a no, tablespoon. If, if you fill it up, generally the pitcher's going to tip over and it's going to spill it anyway. And it's not going to have the digestive so juices then, right? So there's right. that. Just want a, a safe amount is maybe uh, a third of the way up. Okay. A third, you could go even, even go a half. As long as the pitcher can, can hold it and doesn't tip over. From the weight of the of the water, you can do that. But no, okay. you don't want to be adding water in there. You, it, it, it's not necessary. The plant produces its own uh, fluid. Okay. Congratulations right. on growing and, them. I, I find it to be very grow, difficult. They're on an eye, and they never get really direct sun, and they're doing beautifully. Mm. Yeah, they don't need. They don't need that. The, so the the ones we were just discussing were the native ones. Those Asian pitcher plants and the pensies generally do not want full sun. They uh, are I got 
sun or indirect sun. So you, it sounds like you're you're growing them in the right setup. Yep, it's just a lot of indirect light, and they're all outside all the time. So, thank you, Jim, for the question. Thank you. The other thing is, a lot of people get nervous when the pictures start drying up, and I tell them that the the part of that leaf, the pitcher, only lasts maybe, it depends on the species of the hybrid, but usually they only last 8 to 12 months. So when you start seeing them brown up, it doesn't mean your plant's dying. It just means that pitcher is done. And, and so then it's going to send out another one. Yeah, so you can cut it off, and then it will never grow a new pitcher on that leaf, mm. but each new leaf it produces produces a new pitcher. Does it, does it stand out just one pitcher for per leaf on those particular nepenthes? Yeah, and okay. then some plants, depending on how big the pitchers are, if it's a really big pitcher, like bigger than your head, those plants usually just produce like one or two pitchers at a time. Oh. And then some people have bred and hybridized plants that every leaf will have a pitcher, yeah. so you'll have a plant that has tons it's of pitchers. Yeah. yeah. All right, so uh, Manny, we also have an email from... Uh, Rich in Tampa. He says, Hi, Kenny and Manny. I love following you both on Facebook. I've been to Kenny's Awesome Nursery and have relied on Manny's great advice on my Saracenias, which are the North American pitcher plants. And uh, Rich asks, Do you have a favorite carnivorous plant species, Manny? I would say that, well, thank you, Rich, for the very nice words. Uh, I would say that I, I probably did at a certain time. <laughs> it's but, changed now. <laughs> but I, I don't now. I, I I guess I'd be partial to the Saracenia because when you see them in the wild, they can be breathtaking. Uh, the few, the few uh, pristine habitats that remain, they can be very stunning and breathtaking and it's, and it's like being, uh, almost like being in heaven, I would imagine. Aww. Uh in cultivation, I really don't. Uh, as Kenny pointed out earlier, maybe half of my collection is Nepenthes, and the other half is Therastenia, but I still love Butterworts and Sundews and uh, Venus Flytraps. I guess I can tell you my least favorite is Bladderworts. <laughs> <laughs> They're underground, underwater. Right, right. right. <laughs> but they do flower... Uh, you know, one or two times a year. And then in the wild, when they flower in mass, it's this beautiful sea of either purple or yellow flowers. I was going to ask you about that. I'm glad you brought that up because I've seen, and I don't know which ones they are because, you know, here I am, the the listener, not the talker. But I wanted to know which are the ones that are in the wild that do send up that stem mm-hmm. with the ball, with the little flared uh, petals around it, which is the flower. What type is that? Those are the bladderworts. Really? And we have 15 or 16 species that are native to Florida. I say 15 or 16 because one of them is probably extinct in Florida, but it's still found in South America. Okay. Now, is that what she was describing? I I thought was a Saracenia, but I'm not sure. Well, You're saying a, a long stem with a with a ball, a long hard stem with the ball in the center, and then it has flared petals around it. I thought it was a Venus flytrap, <laughs> not a Venus flytrap. I don't know I mean, anything. That, that sounds like a lot of things, but <laughs> the way that my mind works is, I'm picturing a Therastenia. Okay, well, it would be in Florida on the you know mm-hmm. in the wild, so it would be that. Well, but so let's let's Manny, can you tell us where do you find the Saracenia in Florida? Saracenia in Florida range from 
St. Lucie and Okeechobee counties in the south, all the way up to the Jacksonville area, and then all the way west to the tip of the panhandle. So they cover most of the state. Okay. Only one species grows into the peninsula, and that is Thersinia minor, the hooded pitcher plant, which grows as far south as St. Lucie and Okeechobee counties. And it grows up into the uh, eastern part of the panhandle. And uh, only three species grow outside of the panhandle, and that is the uh, Thersinia minor, the hooded one I just described. Then there's Thersinia citicina, which is the parrot pitcher plant. That one grows from the panhandle all the way east across to the Jacksonville area. And then there's Thersinia flava, which is the uh, trumpet pitcher. It's a big, tall, green one of the more showy ones that people can see from the uh, road. And that one also goes from the Panhandle all the way east to the Jacksonville area. Okay. And then uh, the bladderworts are kind of all over the state. The We didn't mention the carnivorous bromeliad. We I didn't did know there was that. that well, one. all the bromeliads are carnivorous, aren't they? Aren't I they? I wish. Oh, no? Okay. They, no, no. Only... Uh, what is it now? It keeps changing. I think it's only three or four species, and they're all in the same. Uh, they're all from the same general area, which is uh, northern uh, South America. I think they're from oh. usually from Venezuela, Brazil, and, and uh, Guyana. And then there's one species that grows into uh, Cuba and parts of the. What is that called? Uh, there's a name for that Mexican Central American. Uh huh. No, on the on the Gulf Coast side. There's a name for that, but it grows there, and then it grows into South Florida, and it uh, is found in uh, probably only now in the Everglades National Park, the Big Cypress Preserve, and I do I have seen it recorded in the Corkscrew <coughs> Swamp near Naples. Don't know if it's still there or not. It is a uh, Catopsis berteroniana. It is it's a solidly green yellow. Uh, uh, epiphytic bromeliad and it produces a powdery substance on the leaves like a lot of bromeliads do and this substance uh, makes the the surface of the leaf kind of treacherous for insects and small animals and they fall into the liquid in the bromeliad where they drown and are then and this is where it gets tricky this is where the argument uh, lies with the the debate whether these bromeliads are carnivorous or not. I believe that in, the, in these bromeliad cases, I'm not sure, Kenny will probably know if they produce an enzyme or they rely on some sort of bacterial breakdown uh, to absorb the, the uh, nutrients. Do you know that, Kenny? They, there's no known um, enzyme that they produce. So they just drown and rot. So, Well, they're relying on bacteria, mm-hmm. but so does a native North American pitcher plant. Though right. There's and, one. And, cobra, and the cobra plant. Yeah. Also, so there's two officially, two official carnivorous plants, at least. If, I don't know if Rorigula is official or not, but uh, there's a, so, uh, the native carnivorous plants native to the United States. There are two that rely on bacterial breakdown and don't produce enzymes. Or if I think if one does, it's the very, very... 
uh, mild enzyme. And that's, I guess that's why I was a little confused when you were talking, when I said, oh, aren't they all? And now I, re- I recognize basically what it is. It's producing its own algae in there to feed itself. Mm-hmm. So that's how that does that. So if it just so happens to get some creature in there, then it's breaking that down and feeding from that, which would then be sort of like the algae kind yeah, of, right? but algae is right. not an animal. So we don't say it's no. carnivorous. That's true. Very true. Because <laughs> you're right. It's if farming. they all were carnivorous, we wouldn't have the mosquito issue <laughs> that we have with the bromeliads. Ooh, which is, brings me to the next question, Manny. Okay. Are carnivorous plants, are they good forms of pest control? Great question. I get it a lot. And I would say, honestly, <laughs> no. Not really. <laughs> not really. They're not going to... Uh, they're not going to eliminate any pest, any legitimate pest problem. You have. Let me start. Let me say that it's any legitimate pest problem you have. Uh, they will capture and eat a lot of prey. Uh, my plants this time of year start engorging themselves on love bugs. And so much to the point where they even get uh, what you can refer to as indigestion, where the, the pitcher will <laughs> They're overloaded. start to rot. Uh, due to the amount of love bugs that just can't help oh themselves. Like, I, I mean, they'll, they'll be like at the rim of the trap and they're still in there. And I'm like, how can, how can you not get out? You're literally at the edge. <laughs> <laughs> but that being said, there are still infinite amounts of love bugs all around. Yeah, so they, they can only not. do so mosquitoes, much. Mosquitoes, unfortunately, the ones that are a problem are attracted to us, not to nectar. Uh, the the, the blood-sucking mosquitoes are not really looking to feed on nectar. They're looking to feed on you, so they're not, uh, uh, they're usually not attracted to them. They will get caught by chance, but not, uh, not in mass, like love bugs or ants or moths. Yeah. So we spent quite a bit of time talking about Florida's carnivorous plants. Are there any non-Florida carnivorous plants other than the Nepenthes that would be good to add for inside the house or in the backyard that you recommend? I don't think, I think, the well, Florida, is, if I'm not mistaken, is the state that has the most carnivorous plant species. Yeah. Uh, I don't think there are many out that, that grow outside of Florida that would be any more conducive to indoor growing. Is that what you were asking or just cultivation in general? Yeah, like I was thinking about like uh, the South American pitcher plants or Mexican butterworts oh, or... Those do better inside? I thought you meant United States. Uh, sorry, you meant in general. Yes, yeah. that's right. You did say that. Yeah, a lot of people like growing Mexican butterworth, uh, and they don't really do well in Florida to begin with. Uh, I'm not sure if it's too much, it's too hot or it's too humid during the summer, but they mostly don't like it here. But people have been successful growing them inside, and because they come from more arid, semi-arid climates than what we have here in Florida. They, they tend not to mind growing in a more dry, less humid environment, and their light requirements are also not as intense as the native species. So people do like Mexican butterworts, and those, there's much, much more variety with the Mexican and Central American butterworts than there are with the native ones. You can also hybridize them, which we uh, can't do with our native species. So, Manny, you, we could go another hour on this. This is fantastic. And you have been a wonderful guest. And we want to thank you so much for being on here. Uh, we really appreciate it. Um, 
I wanted to also mention that Kenny, our, our own Kenny Coogan, his new book, uh, Florida Carnivorous Plants, Understanding, Identifying, and Cultivating the State's Native Species, will be out this summer. I think it's July, isn't it? Or yes. July. And please tell your listeners what, it's, uh, what it is about. So we really appreciate you being here, uh, Manny, and you've been a delight. So the, Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Manny. So the book that's coming out has over 125 full-color photos, oh. m- many of which Manny contributed. Oh, very good, Manny. You were on board with the, with the book. Yes. That's fantastic. Thank you. It's exciting for me. Yeah, it's exciting for all of us, really. I'm just thrilled to see it. So like Manny was mentioning, Florida has the most carnivorous plants out of all the states. We have over 30 species. So in my book, I cover each of the species, where you can find them. I have maps. I have grow charts and oh you have maps so we can go look yes oh that's nice i tell you i I tell you the counties like a trail i also highlight the diverse uh scientists from all over the world who help discover florida's native plants that's wonderful and if you go to roman.com you can find the book to pre-order now so thank you manny and uh you guys are pleasure i had a lot of fun oh thank you we'll do it again uh, whenever you'd like to have me. yeah we're gonna have to add an hour next time for sure (laughs) i think halloween would be a great time oh that would be a good time (laughs) that's a good idea all right thanks manny thank you If you enjoyed this show and our weekly content, please consider going to WMNF.org, donating through the tip jar, and directing your donation to The Sustainable Living Show. Your donation helps keep us on air. Stick around for the next hour to hear WMNF Tampa's Monday Music with Flea. If you want to hear more public interest programming, you can switch over to WMNF's HD3 channel, The Source, to, to listen to today's Tom Hartman Show Live, where we will be... Sorry... Join us next Monday where we will be talking with Siggy Coco on building with natural materials. I want to say something real quick before that because I think you guys ought to look at her site before. And if you can, go to buildnaturally.com. She builds stuff with natural materials like hay and clay. And it's beautifully done. It's all circular and very interesting, uh, very artistic. I just love it. It's really an interesting site to go look at, and uh, there's a bio on her as well on that. Yes, and if you can't remember that, (laughs) you can go to our Facebook page, Sustainable Living, WMNF, to get her link. Also, this Saturday at USF Botanical Gardens, there will be a carnivorous plant sale from 9 to 2. Kitty will be there. That's right, because I love carnivorous plants. (laughs) Yes, and they love you. (laughs) Thanks. So, I am Kenny Coogan. And I am Annie Ellis. Remember, if you're looking for someone to save the world, look in the mirror. Bye-bye. Bye. Here comes the sun. Here comes the sun, I said, it's all